And as you know, we are uh, going through these eight lessons on the foundations of our faith. And, and not only our faith as a church, but also uh, Reformed churches in general. And uh, that tonight we're going to get to the fourth part of our tulip, the acrostic, that uh, speaks about the, what the doctrines of grace actually mean. Uh, and we're looking at I today, which is one of my favorite letters <laughs> in, the, in the tulip acrostic. The idea of irresistible grace that the grace that Christ offers towards us, uh, he, he, he woos us to himself. And it's just a beautiful, uh, a beautiful understanding of the love that God has for us, that he would overcome our hesitancy in bringing us to himself. So Dr. Karufi, Elder Jeff Karufi is going to be uh, bringing forth our lesson tonight. Thank you, Jeff. Good evening. <clears throat> Can you hear me okay? Let's pray together before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you praise that we can gather this evening in your name. And uh, we gather tonight to glorify your name, to worship you, and um, to learn more about you. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you would um, open our eyes, open our ears. God, give us grace to hear. And uh, just help us to understand uh, the depth of your love and your grace uh, towards your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, it's really good to be back uh, with you again. Um, tonight, we're going to continue our series on the doctrines of grace. And um, you may or may not have known that the collective doctrines that we've been talking about through the acrostic tulip are often referred to as the doctrines of grace. And in the first week, for those of you who haven't been able to make it, we went over the, the idea of total depravity, the idea that man is corrupted completely by the fall, his nature is corrupted by sin, and Josiah did a fantastic job of explaining that to us. The following week, we talked about the fact that the Father sovereignly elects a people unto himself for salvation. Um, then the third week, last week, Josiah again did a phenomenal job of explaining the fact that the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, atones for the sins of those people that the Lord has elected from before the foundation of the world. And we established the fact that Jesus didn't die for all the sins of all people everywhere. He died for the sins of his people in particular. And so oftentimes the doctrine is not called the doctrine of limited atonement. It's sometimes referred to as the doctrine of particular redemption. He died for a particular people. Tonight, we will talk about the, uh, the doctrine called irresistible grace. And it's also, it also has a different name, oftentimes called <clears throat> excuse me, effectual grace. And then next uh, week, Tom Starkey, Dr. Tom Starkey, is going to wrap up this part of the teaching uh, on the perseverance of, with the per perseverance of the saints, which is the doctrine that says that God preserves these same people that he has elected, atoned for, and brought to faith. Now, you'll notice that in the three doctrines in the middle, election, atonement, and grace, you see the action of the Trinity 
working together in harmony perfectly, beautifully. The Father elects. The Son atones for the sins of those he elects. And the Holy Spirit carries all of this out. The Holy Spirit applies this plan of redemption to the people. So it is oftentimes referred to, this whole process is oftentimes referred to as the covenant of redemption because it is the means by which God is going to redeem a people. Tonight, as I said, though, we're going to focus on the I in TULIP, which is the, um, the doctrine of irresistible grace. And I have put parenthetically that the Holy Spirit gives life and faith. And if I had to come up with a, a theme for the lesson tonight, I think the theme of the lesson is really that the Lord gives life. And in Ezekiel 37, I want to read this passage to you. This is Ezekiel speaking. Then he said to me, speaking about the Lord, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so tonight, as we jump into this extremely important doctrine of grace, um, what I want to do in a, in a brief outline is quickly review what we learned about the golden chain of salvation two weeks ago when we talked about election. And then we'll talk about what it means to be called by God. And we'll sort of define this doctrine of irresistible grace in, in sort of a theological way. And I want to spend most of the time talking through the scriptures that support this view uh, of, the, of the sovereignty of God in, in salvation. Okay. So just a quick review from two weeks ago. Uh, we went through in some detail the justification that God elects people from before the foundation of the world. And I, I presented to you this little chart um, that speaks of how God does this. He he foreknew, when we talked about he, the, the people that God foreknew, doesn't mean that he knows them in advance. It means that he loved them in advance. He placed a special love upon a people, and it, and it says that he foreloved a certain group of people. And those that he foreloved, he predestined or elected. And those whom he elected, he calls. And then those who he calls, he justifies. And we talked about the distinction between election and justification. Uh, and those whom he justifies, he will ultimately glorify. And so tonight, what we're really going to spend some time on is this notion of this part of the chain, uh, this, this link in the chain called calling. How is it, the question we're really after is, how is it that God calls his elect and brings them to faith in Christ? That's ultimately the question that we're trying to answer. Okay. So what does it mean to be called? And if you read scripture, you'll notice that there are really two types of calls that are presented to us in the word of God. The first type you might call as an external or a general call that sort of goes out to everyone. And what I mean by that is that the gospel that we preach is freely and truly offered to everyone. Um, it is available for everyone to hear. It is, it is preached from the pulpits. It is preached in evangelistic settings. Um, 
Some of you may have even been to a Billy Graham crusade. The gospel is truly and freely preached. It is truly and freely offered to all people. Um, that message is sometimes received and sometimes and often rejected. Um, and even we even see that God calls people in a general way through general revelation, which means that even the creation cries out that there's a God. It's not as explicit as the preaching of the gospel, right? But even the creation says there's a God. His invisible and divine attributes are apparent through what has been made. The scripture tells us in Romans 1. And we contrast that view of calling with what, is, what might be called an internal or an effectual call. And, he, and by effectual, we mean something that has an effect, something that is effective, you might say. And that call is separate and distinct from the general call of the gospel. So in this call, the elect hear the same gospel that others hear. But in the hearing of this gospel, this special call which comes to God's elect people grants them life and faith and repentance. And in the granting of faith and repentance, they are thereby justified. But all of this starts with the work of the Holy Spirit in the act of regeneration. Now, let me give you an example of how we see the difference in how people respond to the same sort of preached word. In 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verses 22 to 24, it says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. This is Paul speaking. A stumbling block to Jews, and folly or foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the message of Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So these two groups of people, you'll notice that there are Jews and Gentiles in both groups. One group hears the gospel and it's foolishness to them, or it's a stumbling block to them. Another group, also from Jews and Gentiles, hears the same message of Christ crucified, and they say that's the power of God. And that's the wisdom of God. So what's, what's the difference between the people? What's the difference between the two groups? Well, something is different. So I'm going to give you some examples of the general calling that we see throughout Scripture. Really, throughout all of Scripture, you see calls like this. But I just want to go through a few with you. In Isaiah 51, uh, uh, sorry, Isaiah 55, verse 1, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's a very broad, open invitation to come Right? Anyone who thirsts, come. Revelation twenty two seventeen, we see similar language. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's an open invitation. In Matthew 11, uh, verses 28 to 30, the Lord Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is talking about those who are heavy laden and they labor with their sin. They labor with sin. They are, they are burdened by sin. And he says, come to me, for my burden is light. And in Matthew 22, uh, 
in the verses that precede verse 14, you'll recall that this is the wedding feast of, of the king who holds a wedding feast for his son. And uh, you, you might recall the story that uh, <clears throat> nobody's showing up to the wedding, so the Lord says, go out into the streets and invite whoever, like, whoever wants to come. And some come, and one of the, one of the persons in the wedding is, is not wearing the wedding clothing, and, 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 and then he's thrown out, essentially, right? Into outer, into outer darkness, the scripture says. And then Jesus, in the closing verse of this passage, of this parallel, really says an amazing thing. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Sorry. Um, the effectual calling, on the other hand, is something that's, that seems to be different. The same Jesus who just said, come, in John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now the word draws, um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not a Greek expert by any stretch of the imagination. I only read Greek as far as it pertains to mathematics. So as I understand it, the drawing here is not wooing. It is not urging. It is not, right? It's not wooing. It's compelling. So my understanding of the word is that it means that unless the Father who sent me compels him to come. Acts 2.39, Peter, speaking of the promise of the Holy Spirit, says this. For the promise is for you, he's speaking to Jews. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone who, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The everyone uh, who is far off, that would be those of us who are Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called. Paul's writing to Christians. God is faithful to whom, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In 2 Peter 1.3, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory. So, there is clearly some other kind of call which is not simply an invitation to come. Okay. Um... Last week, uh, so I thought it would be really important for us to sort of talk about what grace is. And I think that if I were to ask everyone in this room, if I said to you, how is it that you became a Christian? I'm guessing that 90, somewhere between 99 and 100% of you would say, I was saved by God's grace or something along those lines. Or you may say something like, well, I recognized my need for the Savior because I realized that I was a wretched sinner, and God saved me by his grace. I'm guessing that the vast majority of you would reply with some sort of answer like that. But what is grace? What is saving grace in particular? Common grace is a sort of a theological term that means the grace that God sort of has for the whole world. So common grace is just the fact that God waters the earth with rain. He allows the sun to shine. He, we wake up and we have breath. 
We're not dead. We're, we're alive. We're here today. That's common grace. Um, he gives us jobs to work so that we have income to buy food for our families. He does the same for unbelievers as he does for us. That's common grace. Saving grace is something else. Saving grace is something special. It's not common. It's not general. It's specific. And there are really two prevailing views here as to what is meant by saving grace. And last week when we met, um, Pastor, when he did the introduction, or maybe it was afterwards, made a really important statement that I wish I had said when we, when we talked about unconditional election, and that is to say that we may not share the same view with our brothers and sisters who are of the Arminian persuasion, but it doesn't mean that we don't think that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. So there are genuine brothers and sisters in Christ who, who don't believe what we believe from a Reformed theology point of view. So I thought it would be really important for us to state that up front, that it's okay in some sense. We hope that the scripture convinces our brothers and sisters of what it says, but that's at the end of the day, that's, that's in God's hands. But um, the first view is the Arminian view, which is also known as prevenient or enabling grace. And this view, and I'll, and I'll do my best to do justice to this um, as best I can. In this view, unregenerate man, so remember we're in a fallen state, corrupted by sin. Unregenerate man is capable of believing the gospel. And you say, now wait a minute. I was an Arminian. And I didn't really believe that. What I believed when I was an Arminian was that I don't really think I can believe the gospel without the help of the Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, you've heard that. You've probably said that. And that's true. The second point is this, and this is an important one. The Arminian view is also that man is spiritually dead. That The Arminian view is that there is total depravity, but that God gives grace to enable him to choose Christ. In other words, the dead man, the unregenerate man, is dead, but God gives him enough grace that he can choose, according to his own will, to come to Christ. There's enough, I don't want to say goodness, but there's enough in him to be able to choose. Okay. Now, the sticking point is that this grace does not ensure that he chooses Christ. So, it's available. It's possible. But it doesn't guarantee anything. Maybe he'll choose correctly, and maybe he won't. If he chooses correctly, he'll be regenerated. If he doesn't choose correctly, he'll be lost forever. That is generally the Arminian view. You have enough grace that's been shown to you to choose Christ, even though you're dead in sin. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, there are at least two problems with this view that I can see. The first one is this. Man's faith has to come before he's reborn. This view, essentially, you have no choice. There's no escaping it. It says that man's faith precedes his um, birth. That's the first issue. Second issue 
is that his salvation ultimately depends on his will and no one else's. That's the sticking point, right? At the end of the day, the final decision is man's decision. Okay. Now, I hope I've done justice to that view. I feel confident in explaining that view because that was my view when I was saved by the Lord. I really believed that I was born again because I believed the gospel. Therefore, God then made me born again because I believed. That's completely reversed, as we're going to prove from the scriptures. Okay. The second thing I want to mention is that it would be unfair to not at least talk about one of the main passages that Arminians, our Arminian brothers and sisters, use to support this view. Titus 2.11 is often quoted, and it sounds really compelling. It sounds very universal. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And it sounds like the grace of God has appeared for all people, and he has brought salvation for all people. And it can't mean that he's brought salvation for all people, because that would be universalism. <clears throat> and that simply can't be what that means. Um, but... The difficulty with this is that if you look at this verse in context, it's the next three verses that give you the full context. The rest of it says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Now, prior to verse 11, in verses 1 through 10, and really even starting in chapter 1 of Titus, what Paul has been doing is talking about how Christians should live. He's talked to Titus about how to organize the churches. He's talking about how uh, employees should act towards their employers. He's talking, he uses the expression slaves and masters. He's talking about all these different ideas. And then he says, starting here in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. And you'll notice that everything that the grace is pointing to is, are all these things that the grace is supposed to do to his for his people. Train them in renouncing ungodliness. So the first point you really have to see is that the word all people, the expression all people doesn't mean all people without right exception. doesn't mean every person on the earth has been brought salvation. It means all kinds of people have been brought salvation. And we talked about that in the discussion on election. We also talked about that in the discussion on limited atonement. That the word all doesn't always mean all. It doesn't mean everyone on the planet. It means all kinds of people from every tribe, nation, and language. And the rest of the passage talks about the grace of God training us, us, believers, to live Godly lives as we await the return of Jesus Christ. That's what the passage is about. The passage is not a generic, universalistic expression of God's grace or salvation being given to all people. So I just thought it would be important to 
at least mention that if, if nothing else. So, um, okay. Hopefully that was clear. The <clears throat> reformed view is what we call irresistible or effectual grace. And uh, oftentimes the pushback on this doctrine is the word irresistible. And um, lots of reformed theologians don't like the word irresistible. It just makes tulip work really well as an acrostic. And um, I had it in my slides, but I took it out. There's a better acrostic. It's Muppet. And I took it out because I thought it was silly and I didn't want to make light of such an important topic. But Muppet is really, really good. Um, meticulous, meticulous providence, unlimited election, particular redemption, perseverance of the saints, um, effectual grace. Thank you. That's the topic tonight. <laughs> effectual grace and total depravity. So maybe you'll remember Muppet instead of Tulip in the future. Um, so people like the word effectual instead of irresistible because they say to themselves this, and I, said, I would have said the same thing. People can resist God's grace. People resist God's grace all the time. How can grace be irresistible? People resist it all the time. I mean, I resisted God's grace before I was saved for six months. I mean, I didn't even come to a Bible study. I resisted attending a Bible study for six months until I finally gave in and, and attended. Not because I wanted the Lord, but because I had to get this guy off my back. So do people resist? Yes, absolutely they resist. That's not what this doctrine says. This doctrine does not say people don't resist the grace of God. They absolutely do. What it says is, though, in the elect, the Holy Spirit eventually overcomes their resistance and they become willing freely to come to Christ. There's a huge difference between that and, um, and the other view. And I'll explain what I mean. In the Reformed view, which we've been saying all along, unregenerate man is incapable of believing the gospel. If you are dead in sin and trespasses, you cannot believe the gospel. The scripture says in Romans 8, uh, verses 7 to 8, not only is he unable, the unregenerate man is downright hostile to God. It's not only that he's incapable, he has no desire. He hates God. That's what the scripture says. Um, because he's spiritually dead, he cannot and will not come. He must first be regenerated by the Holy Spirit before he can ever dream of coming to the Lord. So, the doctrine really says this, those who are regenerated certainly and willingly come. We're going to go through what the Westminster Confession says about this doctrine as well. But um, So, in this view, man's faith doesn't come before the new birth. Rather, the new birth causes man's faith. The new birth creates faith. In other words, faith is a consequence of being born again, not a necessary condition to be born again. Does that make sense? Okay. His salvation, instead of depending on his will and his decision-making process as an unregenerated mind, his salvation depends on God's work alone and not on his own. So this is the view. This is the reformed view. 
this is utterly and completely the Reformed view. I've never heard a Reformed person give a view that's different than this. And the key distinguishing factor, you may say it's, it's, it's splitting hairs. It is not splitting hairs to say that you cannot come to faith if you are dead. That's not splitting hairs. Those two views are worlds apart. So, this is my paraphrase of the doctrine, and, um, and then we'll look at the Westminster. So, the doctrine of irresistible or effectual. By the way, the effectual means that it is effective, right? So, this grace that God gives is always effective. The doctrine of irresistible or effectual grace asserts that when God moves in the lives of his elect to give them spiritual life, Nothing in heaven or on earth can prevent him from doing so. That is, the Holy Spirit never fails to bring about the new birth, regeneration, of the elect, so that they freely and willingly believe the gospel and are saved. In other words, God never fails to regenerate anyone he has purposed to save. Now, do you see that the Arminian view, the, the, problem, the problem that our, our Arminian brothers and sisters have with this doctrine of grace is the same problem that they have with the view of election. They don't like election, so they don't like irresistible grace. Right? So if you don't believe in election, and you have a very strong belief in man's free will, then you certainly have a hard time accepting irresistible or effectual grace. So these two things are so closely intertwined that you, you can, almost can't separate them. Okay. All right. <clears throat> In case I haven't made it clear, I love the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, not more than I love Scripture, but the Westminster Confession, Chapter 10, is entitled, Of Effectual Calling. And the first paragraph, the first two paragraphs are the two that I want to focus on. The first paragraph says, all, the, all those whom God hath predestinated unto life and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace." Questions 31 and 32 of the Shorter Catechism are, deal directly with this question of what is effectual calling. What on earth did I just do? Here we go. Second paragraph is shorter. It says, the effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein until... Being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call 
and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Just as a reminder, in 1 Corinthians 2, it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I want to just back up to the first paragraph for one moment and, and uh, clarify something here. People have trouble with the effectual grace because what they think it means is that the faith that's required to believe, to be saved, to be justified, if God is the one who causes it, then it's not really my faith. So in other words, we kind of get back into this mindset that God makes everybody to be a robot. And he's sort of pulling the strings. Well, he is, in some sense, pulling some strings, right? But the faith that saves, the faith that the Holy Spirit leads you to, is the faith that saves. And it is a real faith, and it is your faith. It is a real faith that you experience, that you exercise. It is not the faith of the Holy Spirit. It is the faith that you exercise to come to Christ. So when the scripture says that you have to believe to be saved, that's absolutely true. You must believe to be saved. But you can't believe unless the Spirit awakens you and causes you to believe. It's still your faith. You still believe. So when we preach the gospel, we don't preach the gospel and walk away and don't ask for a response. Right? I mean, we, we preach the gospel and say, what do you think of that? Did, did anything I say make sense to you? And we wait for a response. You know, did they, did they hear it? Did they receive it? They may not have heard it. They may not have understood it the first time. But we always ask for a response because, in fact, it is your faith. It's real faith. It's you. You generate the faith. But it is, it is not possible for you to generate the faith unless the Spirit has brought you to life. Does that make sense? It's not a borrowed faith. It's truly your faith. Right. All right. So what does the Spirit do? And I'm, I apologize that this is, this is going to go a little longer than probably a pastor wanted me to go. But what does the effectual calling do? By the, word of the, by the word in the Spirit, what does this effectual calling do? It grants life to those who are spiritually dead. That's the first thing it does. The second thing it does is it gives the elect a new heart. And what that means is the whole inner man, the whole inner man is the, is the heart. His nature, his disposition, his will is new. The third thing it does is it grants his people the gifts, two gifts, the gifts of faith and repentance. And it does way more than that, by the way. The Holy Spirit doesn't stop with faith and repentance. There's also adoption, there's sanctification, there's everything that follows, right? And I was thinking a lot about this uh, I want to thank everybody for praying for my mother-in-law, Bridget's mom. She has uh, she had open heart surgery this past week, and uh, she's recovering well and doing well. And she had to have uh, a new valve put in her heart, and it had to be manufactured from bovine flesh, which is apparently something that happens pretty frequently. I think it's fascinating, but um, you know, she had a faulty heart but it could be repaired. Your heart is not faulty. 
and neither was mine before we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It was completely broken, ruined, in need of a total transplant. You can't replace a valve. You have to have a new heart. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Titus 3, verses 4 to 7, very familiar, I think, to almost everyone. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay. So let's walk through some scriptural um, support for this Reformed view. And um, I, I see that time is getting, getting by us pretty quickly here. So I'll try to um, say the important things, but, uh, but uh, not skip over too many things. John chapter 3 is an extremely important chapter um, in the Gospel of John, and it's an extremely important in the, in the entire scriptures. But in verses 1 to 8, we have this familiar passage about Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the, of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And I'm guessing that, you know, that's very familiar to most of you. But I wonder, you know, how, how frequently we have stopped to think about Jesus' response to Nicodemus, the, the person that Jesus later calls the, the teacher of Israel. He um, doesn't even call him a teacher of Israel. He calls him the teacher of Israel. So he's clearly educated. In verse 3, Jesus says, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you notice that the, what this says is that unregenerate man is spiritually blind. We can't even perceive the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. You can't even see it. You can't even perceive the things of the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And and Nicodemus' response is, is kind of, this is almost a funny exchange because he says, well, how can this be? You know, how can this possibly be? And, and it's almost like Jesus is saying, I think you're proving my point, Nicodemus. You, you don't understand, Nicodemus, because you're not born again, Nicodemus. So he asks again, and so he answers again. Unless one is born of, of water and the Spirit, um, some people think that that means baptism. The water does not, in general, I don't think people believe that that means baptism. 
uh, but usually the water and the spirit sort of has to do with ceremonial cleansing um, and the washing of renewal of the spirit, sort of lumping these two things together, saying the same thing, being born of the spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. So in verse 3, he says, you can't see the kingdom of God because you're blind. And then he says, you're absolutely powerless to enter the kingdom of God. So he has no resources to enter the kingdom of God. And what's really interesting is that what he's saying to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you're no, you can be no more responsible for your spiritual birth than you were for your physical birth. I mean, how many of you, according to your will, decided that you would be conceived by your parents? How many of you, according to your will, decided the timing of your arrival on earth? You're, you're no more able to be born of, by yourself spiritually than you were able to cause your own physical birth. And the last verse in this passage, which I think, I know that, I can't speak for you, but I know for me, I used to just gloss over this thinking that this was an interesting final word that the Lord gives to him. I never really understood it. I have to admit, it took me a long time to figure out what this means. But in verse 8, he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So the wind blows speaks of the certain and effective actions of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit moves. The Spirit does something. The Spirit is not stagnant or static. It's dynamic for you engineers. The wind blows where it wishes. The wind blows where it wishes. What does that mean? It describes the sovereignty of the Spirit, right? The triune God is sovereign. The Spirit does what it wills. And what does it will to do? It wills to apply God's plan of redemption. It carries out what the, what the Father has preordained. So it speaks of the sovereignty of the Spirit in the regenerative work. It's not controlled by man. Have you tried to control the wind? Um, I was thinking of something funny. I said, who can control the wind? And, I, and then, you know, I kind of shot myself in the foot because I thought about aeronautical engineers. They make wind tunnels, right? So that's not a very good example. But can you control the wind outside? When you go outside in the fall, in the autumn, and you see the leaves rustling, you don't know where the wind comes from and where it goes. Jesus says, that's exactly how it is with the Spirit, right? Um, you hear its sound, but you don't know. The Spirit's work is mysterious. You're not able you're not able to tell the Spirit, come and regenerate me. The Spirit does its work in a mysterious way. It is inward. The rebirth is inward in the heart. You don't, you don't know it. You don't comprehend it. It does it on its own. Does that make sense? So the bottom line of this passage, that what, what, what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is this. You can't possibly see or enter the kingdom of God unless you are reborn and you can't possibly control being reborn do you hear that do you see that that's what he's saying 
You don't control the spirit. Man doesn't control the spirit. The spirit has the mind of God. Only the spirit has the mind of God, right? All right. Um, some passages of scripture that I think are really important. The spirit is the one who gives life. In Ezekiel 36, 26, this is, this is how the spirit brings us to faith in Christ. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, um, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your heart and give you a heart of flesh. In John 6, 63, you may remember this passage. Jesus has just told, uh, I think, a large group of people following him. Some of those are his closest disciples. And he's just got done telling them that they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they say, oh, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And then it says that many of them walked away from him, right? And in response to that question, who can accept this? He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Ephesians 2.1.2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's our condition before being reborn. And in Ephesians 2.5, when we were dead in our trespasses, speaking of God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Okay. So, not only is, um, not only is the new birth a gift of the Holy Spirit, but faith itself is the gift of God. <clears throat> And hopefully, I'll convince you of that. In John 1, 12, 13, 12 and 13, uh, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, whom he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who were those who received him? Who were those who believed in his name? Who were those who gained the right to be called children of God? Those who were born, not of man, but born of God. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. They will. It doesn't say, all that the Father gives to me, I've given the possibility that they will come to me. It says, they will come to me. It is definite. Acts 13.48, we went over this when we talked about election. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, those believed. The ones who were appointed to eternal life. Ephesians 2.8 is a very familiar passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And people sometimes debate, what is the this? Other versions say, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God so that no one can boast, etc. What is the this or what is the that? Is it the grace or is it the faith? And we believe that it's everything. It's all three. It's the grace, it's the saving, and it's the faith. They're all lumped together in one package. What is not of yourselves? This is not of yourselves. The grace, the saving, and the faith. None of it is of you or me. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ, that you should believe. And not only believe, but also suffer. God grants us the gift of faith and suffering. That's nice. Second Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained, in the NASB it says, who have received a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God. And 1 John 5.1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born again. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So <clears throat> those who have been born again believe. That does not say, if you believe, you are then therefore born again. That is not what it says. Uh, my understanding is that a literal rendering would say something like, everyone who is believing that Jesus is the Christ, those have been born of God. Not only is faith the gift of God, but repentance is also the gift of God. Now, you say, oh, this can't be right. The scripture goes around calling people to repent all the time. Well, it also goes around calling people to believe all the time. And I think faith and repentance are, as Pastor said this morning in his sermon, to have faith without repentance is, uh, I'm not sure what kind of faith that is. The scripture doesn't really recognize that as a legitimate faith. So repentance is a gift of God as well as faith. Um, and this is Peter um, preaching to the high priest. God exalted him, speaking of Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to do what? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To give repentance to Israel. In Acts 11, verses 17 to 18. If then, this is Peter preaching to uh, to Jews, and he says, speaking of Gentiles, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when, he believed, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, the Jews, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And in Romans 2, 4, do you presume on the richness of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Okay. In 2 Peter chapter 2, this is the next to last slide. So for those of you who are dozing off, please bear with me just a little longer. Second Timothy 2, 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Peter's giving, uh, excuse me, Paul is giving Timothy instruction on how to deal with those who are quarrelsome, I guess, in some sense. But he says, don't be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance repentance. And in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, you may recall that the, the context of this passage is that uh, Peter is encouraging God's people not to dismay over the fact that, that Jesus hasn't returned, that his second coming hasn't come to pass yet. 
And he says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing or willing that any of the elect should perish, but that all of the elect should reach repentance. God is not willing that any of his people will perish but that they will all reach to repentance. Okay. All right. So, what's the punchline? The punchline is that from beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. And I thought it was quite providential of the Lord that this morning um, Jack read out of Psalm 3, and uh, I think that's the very last part of Psalm 3. It says, salvation is of our Lord, so praise him for his glorious saving grace. And I want to just close with, I think it's always important to close with the word of God, but uh, in Revelation chapter 7, John has been given this vision. And in the first eight verses of this chapter, he describes seeing the 144,000 of the Jewish race 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel um, being sealed. And starting in verse 9, he says this. After this, after seeing uh, the 12, tri 12 tribes, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the lamb. And wow, it's not a small group of people. You know, people always joke about reformed folks, you know, we four and no more. <laughs> Have you ever heard that? Frozen chosen, you know, that kind of thing. It's not, we don't believe that at all. There's going to be a great multitude who have been redeemed by the Lord. A great multitude. And we're going to be rejoicing. And this is what, this is the vision that John, John sees us. Clothed in white robes. What an incredible picture to think about our future. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace that saves us. Thank you for your grace that redeems us. Thank you for the grace of election. Thank you for the renewal that comes through the Holy Spirit. I thank you for giving us a new heart. We couldn't have given ourselves a new heart, Lord, and I just praise you that you are the one who does it all from beginning to end, and we can't thank you enough for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, I had one more slide. I got to use this again, don't I? Yeah. Just some references in case you were interested. Um, read The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. Something. I haven't read it all, I have to admit. I just use parts of it. But uh, Potter's Freedom by James White is a great book to read. And uh, there's some sermons by John Wesley that I think are very, very useful and fruitful. So, all right.